0: Once again, I've been asked by Sana to uh, the Dharma talk, I always find it to be an incredible challenge. I lecture quite a bit in many countries. But I've never been as nervous mm-hmm. as a <laughs> <laughs> uh, And this is the fourth and I'm getting more nervous. <laughs> <laughs> <instead> of, <laughs> And slowly I'm beginning to understand what the reason is, that I'm really not a scholar of Buddhism. So I I haven't read, worked through the tradition, which would be what what I had to do when I studied philosophy in in Germany, for example. It began with the Greeks, you had to learn Greek, classical Greek, you had to know and so on. And Latin, and, uh, and I just haven't, I mean, any of you have the energy to do that with the languages that are involved in the history of Buddhism. Well, my uh, compliment (laughs) is an enormous amount of work. So so it always makes me sort of self-conscious and there is another reason for this which is a more profound reason that we live in a time in which things are somewhat chaotic. We, uh, traditions, are kind of transported from one part of the world to the other. We don't know how they fit together with our own inheritance, and that's what I'm trying to reflect on. And uh, it's not easy. I'm just beginning to to pay some attention to that. But the easiest way to begin is to, of course, look at oneself and know who one is not. plus who one is. You don't find it. Uh, it's a, a statement that I had from found, um, the poets in the Zen tradition, which I find most fascinating, but they're different from, and so different from anything I've learned. The haiku poems, uh, poets of Japan, um, and the most famous, of course, is Pasho. And um, given that I am pretty old, much older than most of you here. Um, there is one that intrigued me, because it, it reflects my my feeling as a person, and then on the intellectual side there is always something different, uh, the mind kind of, as some people argue, kind of can survive many physical disabilities and so on, and here, uh, this is the, the, the verse from Basho. On the withered branch a crow has perched, autumn evening. Now. We don't have autumn, but we have winter <laughs> once again. <laughs> and I feel like that crow on a withered branch. Uh, and uh, sometimes, I mean, even at age 80, you don't have to feel old, by the way. It's quite interesting. But if, as long as one is not sick or, and so on. Okay. so. Nevertheless, a withered branch is also a crow, a withered uh, kind of being, but someone who has lived in different countries known, and uh, non-different traditions and sometimes doesn't quite know where he belongs. Um, a comment by someone whom you may have encountered, if you read the Upaya Zen uh, Center website, there is uh, a Japanese since I am very active in that book, uh, Kast Tanahashi, who referred, referred to um, Basho expressing universal solitary loneliness. Mm-hmm. Now, that that kind of interpretation of coming out of Buddhism is way beyond uh, classical Buddhism. So, the little I have read, for example, just looking at the Metta Sutta, the famous Metta Sutta, the ones from India in the uh, the, uh, at the time of the historical Buddha, uh, Gotama, Gota, uh, um, they—they're much more metaphysical to me. They're not as um, nature-oriented as, for example, Japanese uh, haiku poetry is. And my understanding is—and this I would like to learn more about—and perhaps some people here know, already know it. The encounter, I've never fully understood, the encounter between Taoism and uh, Buddhism in China, which is the basis for Zen Buddhism, and we're reading a text together which gives us a sense of how different Taoism is from the more, to me, more metaphysical traditions of India. And it's an incredible process, very complicated going through many stages, which uh, uh, I I don't know enough about. But when I think of that, the encounter, primary encounter of Buddhism with the West has been uh, through uh, Japanese then Buddhism that has been the most forceful uh, presence in the West. And it certainly was the first I encountered The authors I met often didn't even speak of Buddhism, they just spoke of them. And uh, and that's before there was the wave of um, interest that happened in the United States which was sort of driven by other forces which came out of US culture. But in Germany where I grew up it was largely through academic people or psychologists. And, and not so much through, let's say, the counterculture, which, which was the driving force in the 60s in the United States, and then from there came here. So the, the, the big question is for me, is um, sort of east-west in a way. Um, you think of um, what um, it seems comes through in the various kinds of Buddhist, ways of thinking or Taoist thinking, and, I, and now to me it's almost not important to separate them, is um, acceptance. One is part of a structure that is much larger than oneself and one doesn't have to refer to a deity to, to say this. I looked at the Hebrew Bible. I once learned some Hebrew as well. And the first, the third verses of the of the Genesis, the book of Genesis, are is when you the the, the best translation of a very central phrase is grow, uh, multiply, etc. You've all heard. this, probably the majority, and 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 uh, subject the earth to your will. It's really not, the, the better translation is subdue the earth to human will. Now, so what we have in to human, uh, that I, I forgot exactly how it's spelled. I have it somewhere here in my nose, and um, that is but subdue is the central phrase. My sense is that that is inconceivable in the Asian traditions which I've mentioned. So you have an incredible cultural clash. We are subject to the tradition that began with Genesis and then was filtered through, um, um, especially Southern European and Middle eastern uh, philosophy and, and uh, I don't know if I can say religion. Um, and the difference is, one that there are people who argued, like the philosopher Heidegger, that the origin uh, one could see could make an argument for a, a coherent development from some uh, Platonic philosoph- philosophical ideas of ideas of a form that can be separated from things themselves, that uh, to modern technology. So when you think of subduing the earth to human will, then that could be seen as a continuous stream in the West. And how does that match with what now is emerging as as a big question as to what a global culture could look like? How would that match with what comes from East Asian and South Asian thinking and philosophies? And not to forget, on the other side, of course, we know how China and India are now probably the primary industrial powers in the world. They do more innovation than we do. And, uh, and they have the best uh, computer scientists, for example, especially from India. So, uh, so we, are, we are in a situation where to what, th- what we do here in this temple and anything else rests on the cultural background. And the cultural background now is so, so much in flux that we do not know how to yet how to connect things and connect the pieces of various traditions. So you can, in a sense, in a small group, you can do something that is sort of separate and not integrated with the rest of the culture, but as soon as you ask yourself where would the practical impact be in the society, it gets to be quite complicated and different. And at that point, and then I, I turned to things that I, from whom I learned. Uh, well, but let me first go to a, 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 the more spiritual side of the West. Unfortunately, I've lost my, I've given away my English copy of my teacher, Hans-Georg Gadamer, who was a very prominent philosopher in Germany and widely translated into many languages and uh, taught also in North America quite a bit. And he, uh, was like a, not just a philosopher, but a woman who knew the history of art and, and uh, culture, and certainly in Europe, in spoke several languages, lecture in Italian and French. And uh, he has a quote at the beginning of his book, which I will try to translate. It's very difficult. It is from someone I know Sanna likes very much, Rainer <laughs> Maria a great poet, Czech Austrian poet. Who wrote in German? Like those of you who read Kafka, Kafka wrote in German, but he was not German. And uh, so this is a verse from Ulke who now, wrote we the Duino the elegies, which can are. You hear it in the original verse? Sorry? Can you read it for us in German before you read it in English? Can you read it in the original? For you? Yes. Yeah. Well, if. <laughs> <laughs> I don't understand. It I, uh, it's not too long. It's, uh, Solange du selbst geworfenes fängst, ist alles Geschicklichkeit und lässlicher Gewinn. Erst wenn du plötzlich fänger wirst des Balles, den eine ewige Mitspielerin dir zuwarf, deiner Mitte in genau gekonntem Schwung in einem jener Bögen aus Gottes großen Brückenbau, erst dann ist fangen können ein Vermögen, nicht deines einer Welt. Now this is exquisite German. And I will do a brief translation which is far from exquisite. <laughs> <laughs> I've lost, I've lost, and I couldn't find it. I looked for it last night. I couldn't find my, the translation. So it is, as long as you catch only that which you, you have thrown, everything is just cleverness and easy gain. But if suddenly you catch a ball, who, an eternal, player in, in the feminine, a uh, 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 feminine figure, has thrown toward you in an exact arc in one of those arcs which come out of God's great construction of, of bridges of uh, uh, bad translation. Uh, then catching, to be able to catch, is a capacity, not of you, but of a world. So this is about as close as one of the most metaphysical and spiritually oriented poets in the Western tradition gets to something like the integration of human beings into a kind of cosmic context. That's not like Genesis. That's very far from Genesis. In fact, Rilke was part of a movement which turned against Christianity, against traditional European thinking, uh, and certainly not a friend, great friend of technology, He was a great admirer of Tolstoy, of the great the Russian writer, who, uh, who also had misgivings about the Western tradition. Not, none of them became Buddhists or turned to Asian teaching and that only happened much later, but they're kind of foreshadowing what then became a larger movement and an interest in moving back and forth between uh, all these major traditions in the world. Uh, we know now that we are in competition with what always so far wins, which is technology and industry and economics and uh, worldwide. So, but what I hope for is, is a kind of encounter between traditions which, um, gives uh, force to a a different orientation in life. And uh, what we do here is to me one element of that. Um, So it has to happen in many places and in different ways. And um, for example, other ways are to draw on native traditions in the Americas. I'm, I'm very fond of that because I spent much time in Mexico and uh, you know, great writers like Octavio Paz who have worked through the Mexican tradition have made a point that it is not Western in, in the usual sense and that there are elements that one can, can build on as you know that's a big topic in the treatment that Mexico now receives by the United States which just hurts me a lot because I, I really am very fond of that country and it, in it's incredible multiculturality it has 50 languages which are officially recognized, and uh, you know, vast numbers of indigenous people who are still millions. You can be in a town like Oaxaca and in the street, you don't understand what people speak because it's not Spanish. It's not Spanish, it's, 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 um, it's, it's the language of the region. And uh, so that's, um, I think, at a, at a, we are at a, at a crucial point of change. And I find Here very helpful what some people do who try to